0: Father, we thank you so much for this chance to gather in your name tonight. We thank you for uh, the gift of this wonderful book. We pray that you would help us to put aside all the things that we've been preoccupied with during the day and that you would open our hearts to learn from Lewis's wisdom in this book and from your word that we will apply to it. We pray that you would guide us during this time and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Uh, we are going to start with music again tonight and i apologize that the planet of the apes theme last week did not work i'm sure all of you will be clicking on the link in your email to listen to planet of the apes over and over again so tonight's music is slightly different from that so see if anyone knows what this is Any guesses? Guesses on Composer? Is that Nope. Good guess, but no. All right. I will say this is very obscure. I, I felt like I had to redeem myself after Planet of the Apes. So um, that is a lovely song that I would commend to you when you get the email to actually listen to this one. It's called A Song for the Tree of Life. And it is, uh, the musical setting is by Ray Vaughan Williams, one of the great English Anglican composers. And the text is drawn in equal parts from Revelation 22 and Pilgrim's Progress. So it is uh, quite rich. So uh, let's say our verse together as we get started tonight. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law as yourself. So a couple of words of welcome, especially to people who are new, whether you're in person or on the live stream or on the podcast. We're delighted to have you. There are a lot of resources uh, that we will be flooding you with in this class. And uh, as you see up there, you can be on the beach, which means you don't do anything at all. Um, you might come occasionally. Or you can snorkel, go deep on the parts that you like, or scuba dive, go when the email comes next week, listen to that song, look at the words, look at where it came from, um, then d- watch other YouTubes of Ray von Williams and go down the rabbit Uh, But that uh, brings me to the email list. If you are not on the class email list and you're in person, please sign up on the sheet over there. Uh, If you are on the live stream or on podcast, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston uh, and you will find me on the website and then just send an email and we'll, we'll get you added. We're delighted that there are people all over the place that are listening and we're happy to have you and add you. Um, So a couple of things about how to read this book, as I said before, you can read ahead. Those of you that like to read ahead, you go right ahead. Uh, Make this your oyster. It'll be great. Uh, But I would encourage you, even if you read ahead to figure out what's going on, come back when we go chapter by chapter and chew on each chapter. The chapters are short, but they are very, very laden with lots of wonderful things. So, uh, a couple of things, as we said, this was finished in 1953, but published in 1956. Part of why this book is a work of genius is it is operating simultaneously doing three things. It is a marvelous capstone work that draws all the children's Narnia stories together. It is also a profound reflection on the sin of Eden, the means of grace and the glory of heaven. And it is a parable about following Jesus that I think is particularly applicable to 21st century America and the importance of word and truth. So just a quick review, we talked a little bit about Lewis and the Inklings' group of Christian friends who were writers at Oxford and the power of story, and the idea that you can use story, as Lewis said to Sister Penelope, to smuggle any amount of theology into people's minds without their knowing it. People will not sit down and read a theological tome, but they will love to listen to a good story. And that's why Lewis, first and foremost, is an excellent storyteller. Uh, These books are in many ways, I think, a miracle because they were written, the whole series, in this very short period of time. And when you look at the amazing creativity in these books and the different lands and types of creatures and characters, the fact that all of this was done in less than five years for seven books is absolutely astounding. Uh, All sorts of surveys tell us that These books are among the most popular books ever written in the English language and have been from the moment that they were published. So, main characters, we talked about Aslan, the great lion, who's the Christ figure, who is the central character in all the Narnia stories. Tyrion, who we meet finally in the chapter tonight, who is the young man in his 20s, who is the king, who is the heir to the throne of Narnia, Uh, and he has never seen Aslan. He believes in Aslan, he has faith in him, but it has been ages since Aslan literally walked on the ground in Narnia. Uh, Eustace Scrub, with that great name uh, that Lewis starts one of his books with, there once was a boy named Eustace Claret Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Uh, Eustace is a boy who was an absolute, is the, the old word, no one says this anymore, but uh, people used to say someone was a pill well, Eustace is the perfect example of that. He's a person, if you saw him in the room, you would make for the door to get out. But he is transformed by Aslan and becomes a hero. And then Jill Pole, who is a bullied middle school girl at the start of the silver chair, is also transformed by Aslan and becomes um, one of the heroes of this story. So last week we talked about the first chapter by Cauldron Pool, and we said cauldron uh, immediately makes you think of what? A what? A witch, yes, a witch. So that's a clue that there's something bad brewing in chapter one. Uh, So there's trouble in River City, as it were, and uh, things are not good, and we meet this ape called Shift, we meet the donkey named Puzzle, uh, we talked a lot about Lewis and apes and the fact that for Lewis, a lot of times, apes are a symbol of what is wrong with uh, a non-Christian understanding of the way that the world came into being, uh, that apes are associated with progress in this neo-Darwinian theory. Uh, and Lewis uses the phrase trousered apes to refer to men and women who have traded in their humanity, uh, who have stopped functioning as if they were made in the image of God. And there's this great advice from Mr. Beaver in The line the Witch, in the Wardrobe. Take my advice, when you meet anything that's going to be human and isn't yet, or used to be human once and is not now, or ought to be human and isn't, you keep your eyes on it and feel for your hatchet. So watch out for shift. And then donkeys. We talked a lot about donkeys last week. Um, Lewis wrote actually quite a lot about donkeys, believe it or not. He um, had an affection for donkeys as creature. And he thought it was really interesting looking at the role of donkeys framing Jesus's life with Mary riding on the donkey to Bethlehem with Jesus in her womb, ready to be born. And then at the end of Jesus's earthly life, riding on the donkey in that entry into Jerusalem, going to the cross. So it is uh, remarkable to look at that role of donkeys. Uh, Lewis also, because he was a literary scholar, would have been very familiar with Shakespeare's most famous donkey bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And we talked about the time that in that dream, as he's getting ready to come out of it, he gives a soliloquy that is drawn almost word for word out of Corinthians about every good and perfect gift cometh down from above. Um, Quite fascinating. And then we retold the story of Balaam's ass, the donkey who uh, sees and has spiritual insight that his master, does not, so we will be looking for things from the donkey in the story that we might not expect. We also talked about parallels with Genesis 3, uh, the way that the ape shift is presented is very similar to the way that the snake is presented in Genesis 3, the craftiest of the creatures. So uh, watch for that symbolism. We talked about some of the themes in chapter one, bullying and the consequences of it, manipulation and temptation, the importance of truth, the danger of sins of omission, holiness, doing what's right, secret sin, remember the ape sitting there making this fake lion outfit while no one is with him and no one is watching and trying to hide even from the birds because he knows what he's doing is wrong. So secret sin is dangerous. We talked about passive aggression. The ape is the master of what it means to be passive aggressive. If you wanna learn how to be dysfunctional in your relationships, start treating people the way that the ape treats the donkey. Oh, don't worry about me. I'll be fine. You just go on and have a nice time. I'll probably be dead when you get back. You know, all of that kind of stuff. And you're gonna see this just keeps going through the story and there's so much deception and also pride that you see in the ape and it's just going to get worse. Then there's a very strong emphasis on the danger of false prophets and failing to stand up for the truth. So that brings us to chapter two, the rashness of the king. So the setting has changed a little bit. We're still in the area near Lantern Waste, but we're now at the king's hunting lodge. Uh, It's spring and it's in a beautiful wood. And this is the place where the king comes to get away when the pressures of the royal pomp and circumstance and the royal city of Care Paravel get to be too much and he tires of wearing the ermine robes and all of that, he can come to this lodge in the woods with a few servants and a friend and relax a little bit. So we find the king at leisure. He is away from Kirapiravel and he is uh, trying to have some time to just relax. And he's accompanied by his best friend, Jewel the unicorn and some servants. And of course, unicorns are uh, fabulous beasts in both senses of the word fabulous, fabled and remarkable. So unicorns, particularly in the Middle Ages, and remember Lewis is at heart a medievalist. He loved the medieval period. So anything that's big in the medieval period, Lewis is going to be all about. And I would encourage you, if you are ever in Europe to go to some of the museums that have the famous unicorn tapestries. Um, the Cluny Museum in Paris has an amazing collection of these. But the interesting thing about unicorns is that for a little while, they were in the Bible. Now, I'll explain what that means in a minute. So there's a book called the Physiologos, which is a Christian work of the second century. So that's very early in the Christian period. And it was a catalog of beast and fantastic creatures and their moral qualities. And there's a lot of allegory and symbolism going on here. And the unicorns were depicted as wild horned beasts who could only be captured in the lap of a pure virgin, that they would be attracted by the holiness and purity of the virgin. And rather than continuing to run wild, they would peacefully approach her and then put their horned head down in her lap. And so this came to represent uh, the incarnation, this coming of the unicorn to this human uh, and resting there. So uh, the unicorn became a symbol of grace and purity and eventually was sort of normalized as a large white horse or stag with a single horn uh, in the forehead. The Vulgate, which is the translation Saint Jerome did of the scriptures in the 400s, had a mistranslation in it, where the word that we know today most likely means wild ox, was actually translated unicorn. So during the time that the church was using the Latin Bible, people thought of the unicorn as being a biblical creature. And so the unicorn's horn was believed to have magical powers. And so this idea of hunting the unicorn became popular in the imagination of people in the medieval period. And the idea that it was being hunted and that it represented the incarnation soon became associated with the passion of Christ. So uh, you can see in this little uh, excerpt from one of the medieval books of ours, if you look in those prayer books from the medieval period, very often you will find the Virgin Mary with a unicorn representing Christ. So as we've said before with Lewis, nothing is an accident. So the fact that the King's best friend is a unicorn who is a Christ figure is something that's important. So then we get to the fact that we keep seeing woods and trees. And I just want to say, again, I have really restrained myself here. Um, We may end up doing a whole class on woods and trees because they're really, really important in this book. And one of the things that was in an essay that I was just reading that I think is so well exemplified in this story is the author was talking about how in the Protestant Reformation One of the things that happened with the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness, is that in the Protestant Reformation, the Protestants really went after truth and goodness. And there are a lot of really good things about that, but they sort of left beauty behind. And really, the, the Christian view is all of those together, truth and beauty and goodness, all pointing toward Christ and toward the Trinity. And so, The the whole idea of the holiness of nature, um, the way that nature reveals to us truths about God is something that we have often, uh, particularly in our modern age, lost touch with. We've lost touch with the reverence that people felt for nature, and we've literally lost touch with nature. Uh, Up until uh, the 1920s or 30s, most people alive in the world spent most of their day outside, day after day after day. And when they went outside at night, instead of seeing mercury vapor streetlights, they looked up and they saw this jeweled canopy of stars above them. And the scriptures are full of things about the stars and trees and flowers and the mountains and the hills and all of these things giving glory to God. And Lewis and Tolkien both were deeply affected by that. And so they both shared this reverence for nature, especially for trees and forests. and they were inveterate walkers. Um, They loved to walk outdoors, and they would do this on a regular basis. Um, Jane and I this summer got to recreate one of their favorite walks outside of Oxford where they walked along the river for a couple of miles starting at one pub and ending at another. (laughs) That's a great way to appreciate nature. But one of the things that both of them were really upset about was that they decried the despoiling of woodlands and the name of progress. And both the Narnia stories and the Lord of the Rings books include many trees as anthropomorphized characters. Now that's a big fancy word, but anthropomorphized just means that you take something that isn't human and for fictional purposes, you give it a personality and human characteristics. So in both the Narnia stories and the Lord of the Rings, there are all of these trees that are um, have many human-like qualities. And the spoiling and the corruption of nature is a major theme in the abolition of man and that hideous strength. Uh, it's also a major theme in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings those of you that have watched the movies or read the books will remember the wizard Saruman, who is the enemy of the trees, who goes in and fells all of these forests uh, and strips the land. Uh, I love this excerpt from a Tolkien letter of 1962. Every tree has its enemy. Few have an advocate. In all my works, I take the part of trees against their enemies. Now probably most of us have not ever really thought of trees as having enemies, but it's actually quite true and that as man expands, forests diminish. And I wanna just remind you that the story of scripture is framed with trees. We start in the Garden of Eden with the most important things in the Garden of Eden other than Adam and Eve being two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then when you get all the way to the end of the scriptures in Revelation 22, you have the tree of life with the leaves for the healing of the nations. So it's not an accident and that's where Lewis and Tolkien pick up some of this. Um, The leaves of the trees for the healing of the nations are in our stained glass window over the altar of St. Philip's church. Um, Lewis in The Abolition of Man says this, we do not look at trees either as dryads, more about that in a minute, or as beautiful objects while we cut them into beams. The first man who did so may have felt the price keenly and the bleeding trees in Virgil and Spencer may be far off echoes of that primeval sense of impiety. The stars lost their divinity as astronomy developed and the dying God has no place in chemical agriculture. From this point of view, the conquest of nature appears in a new light. We reduce things to mere nature in order that we may conquer them. We are always conquering nature because nature is the name for what we have to some extent conquered. And what Lewis is getting at here is that we have exchanged our God-given responsibility to be stewards and shepherds of God's creation, and we have taken that to be exploiters of God's creation. So dryads, which are gonna show up in these stories, are tree spirits, nymphs who personify trees and may inhabit them. They're benign pagan beings that show up in Greek mythology. They're female, and they're sometimes called woodwomen in Narnia. In the Narnia books, Lewis describes both male and female tree spirits, but only uses dryad to refer to female spirits. When the Talmarines, which is another group of people who are not Narnians, appear in Narnia, magical creatures are hunted down, and the dryads retreat deep within their trees to the point that it's only Aslan who has the ability to wake them. Because remember, he's their creator. Dryads were an important part of Greek mythology, the name coming from the Greek word for oak. The dryads make their first appearance in The line the Witch, and the Wardrobe on Mr. Tumnus' bookshelf. There's some books about them, and they play an important role in many of the Narnia stories as messengers associated with Aslan himself. So the dryads were originally thought to be nymphs of oak trees specifically, but it's been expanded now where pretty much any sort of tree spirit um, found in the sacred groves of the gods is called a dryad. They're considered to be very shy except around Artemis, who was the goddess, who was friendly to them. They were supernaturally long-lived and they were tied to their homes. Um, The Hamadryads were an integral part of their trees so that if the tree that they were the spirit of died, then that Hamadryad died as well. So for that reason, dryads and the Greek gods punished any mortal who harmed trees. So all of that background, you may be thinking, why are we talking about this? Um, All of that needs to inform your understanding of what's going on, because all of this is front and center in Lewis's mind. He thinks, well, he might not think everybody knows this, but he thinks well-educated people know about this. I won't say any more about that. So, some key passages out of this chapter. So, Tyrion, and I love that name, it comes from the Welsh, which was one of Lewis and Tolkien's favorite languages. You'll remember that early in Lewis and Tolkien's friendship, part of the reason they became friends is that they both joined the Coal Biters Society at Oxford, uh, which uh, for fun would sit out in the cold around a fire and read out loud tales in Icelandic to one another. That is fairly specific, Uh, but they loved languages and Tolkien and Lewis both loved Welsh and Tyrion comes from the Welsh word that means gentle and kind. So Tyrion and Jewel open the chapter, they're in the Royal Hunting Lodge and they are happily imagining that Aslan may have returned to Narnia. And remember, every time the Aslan has come to Narnia, great joy breaks out. Amazing things happen. When Aslan came the first time, it was when it was still winter, but never Christmas. And Aslan defeated the White Witch, and spring came and Narnia entered into its golden age. Every time Aslan comes, healing and joy and beauty break out so when they hear Aslan is on the move and he may actually be in Narnia their hearts are stirred and they are so looking forward that they might actually be able to see Aslan and so the first theme that we see is this beautiful hope for the return of the king I cannot set myself to any work or sport today, Jewel, said the king. I can think of nothing but this wonderful news. Thank you, we shall hear more of them today. They are the most wonderful tidings ever heard in our days, or our father's or our grandfather's days, sire, said Jewel, if they are true. How can they choose but be true, said the king. It is more than a week ago that the first birds came flying over us, saying, Aslan is here. Aslan has come to Narnia again. And after that, it was the squirrels. They had not seen him, but they said it was certain he was in the woods. Then came the stag. He said he had seen him with his own eyes, a great way off by moonlight and lantern waste. Then came that dark man with the beard, the merchant from Kellerman. The Calormenes care nothing for Aslan as we do, but the man spoke of it as a thing beyond doubt. And there was the badger last night. He too had seen Aslan. Indeed, sire, answered Jewel, I believe it all. If I seem not to, it is only that my joy is too great to let my belief settle itself. It is almost too beautiful to believe. Yes, said the king with a great sigh, almost a shiver of delight. It is beyond all that I ever hoped for in all my life. And for those of you who are just at church, this is very much that same thing we're talking about in the homily that the greatest hope of his life is in Aslan, in seeing Aslan. Remember, this is the king. This is someone who could decree anything. But the idea of being with Aslan is his heart's desire. But some scriptures. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then from Revelation, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb." So it is the great thing to look forward to for Aslan to come or for us as Christians, for Jesus to come. But the trick is in discerning. So the second thing that we notice here is a kingdom that is characterized by hospitality. And this is the kind of thing it's easy to miss, but it's important to stop and chew on some of these things because part of what Lewis is doing is painting a picture for us of why the land of Narnia is a good land because it is built around serving and following Aslan and embodying the qualities that are important in Aslan's kingdom. So, in this scene, uh, they hear Tyrion and Jewel hear these hoofbeats a long way off, and then suddenly this big, muscular centaur comes trotting up to them. And so, uh, this is what happens a great, golden bearded centaur with a man's sweat on his forehead and horse's sweat on his chestnut flanks dashed up to the king, stopped, and bowed low. Hail, king, it cried in a voice as deep as a bowl's. Ho there, said the king, looking over his shoulder toward the door of the hunting lodge, a bowl of wine for the noble centaur. Welcome, Rinwit. When you have found your breath, you shall tell us your errand. A page came out of the house, carrying a great wooden bowl, curiously carved, and handed it to the centaur. The centaur raised the bowl and said, I drink first to Aslan and truth, sire, and secondly to your majesty. He finished the wine enough for six strong men at one draft and handed the empty bowl back to the page. Now there's really a lot here that we don't have time to unpack, but one of the things to notice is the king's humility. The king insists on serving this creature who has come to him. And he calls the creature by name. And he offers the creature the finest hospitality. Uh, He has the page wait on this creature and he brings him a beautiful bowl. This is not leftovers. This is not tell me your errand and then go back in the back and find something in the kitchen. Um, There is a culture of counting one another as worthy of more honor. And there's this culture of hospitality that even in times where things are afoot, hospitality is still important. So there's much in scripture about hospitality. Share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality from Romans. And then that famous one from Hebrews, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And then this beautiful passage from Genesis, when Abram and Sarah are childless and they are uh, nomads wandering, and the Lord appears. And the Lord appeared to Abram by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So they said, do as you have said. Now, one of the reasons that this is so important is that we live in a very self-centered culture. We are all about serving ourselves, about getting what we want when we want it, and we don't want to wait for it, and we certainly don't want anyone else to get theirs before we get ours. And what you see here is a deliberate honoring of others. And that is part and parcel of Aslan's kingdom. And I would suggest to you, it is part and parcel of Christianity. And if we would recover the gift of hospitality, you might be amazed, and I might be amazed, what it might do in terms of giving life to our efforts to share the gospel. Then, signs in the heavens. So this is after Rinwit has had his draft that would be enough for six men. Uh, Remember, he's a centaur and he's really big. So that doesn't mean that he's toasted after this. (laughs) Sire, he said, you know how long I have lived and studied, oh dear, the Clive staple Lewis 10 stars. (laughs) That's what you get for cut and paste. Uh, You know how long I've lived and studied the stars for we centaurs live longer than you men and even longer than your kind unicorn, never in all my days have I seen such terrible things written in the skies as there have been nightly since this year began. The stars say nothing of the coming of Aslan, nor of peace, nor of joy. I know by my art that there have not been such disastrous conjunctions of the planets for 500 years. It was already in my mind to come and warn your majesty that some great evil hangs over Narnia. But last night the rumor reached me that Aslan is abroad in Narnia. Sire, do not believe this tale. It cannot be. The stars never lie, but men and beasts do. If Aslan were really coming to Narnia, the sky would have foretold it. If he were really come, all the most gracious stars would be assembled in his honor. It is all a lie. And then some scripture from the Gospel of Luke. There will be signs in the sun, the moon and stars. On the earth nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the seas. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And then from Matthew 24. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And then from Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him." Now, I'm not going to do a lesson on astronomy or astrology or uh, fortune-telling or any of those kinds of things. But what I will say is that the scriptures are quite clear that God is the creator of the entire universe and of the heavens and of the stars and all of the bodies in space, and that those bodies and space and stars testify to God. And you see that over and over and over in Scripture. And I would not to presume to say that we, um, unskilled as we are, should be studying the stars and looking for signs, but I think Lewis is trying to remind us that the Lord, the Creator, and the, in the Narnian sense, Aslan and the emperor beyond the sea are lord over all and that all of creation would be testifying if Aslan were coming back. And the fact that just the opposite is happening is something to be very weary of. So that brings us to lies and the sacred and discerning truth. So just before this, King Tyrion and Jewel have been speaking with Rynwood, and then the idea has come to them that perhaps it is a lie, that people have been lying that Aslan has come. And Tyrion can't even believe this. Now, the interesting thing about this is how really, really shocked he is that someone would lie about something sacred. And that is just a reminder of how far our culture has fallen. Uh, I don't want to say too much praising Islam by any stretch of the imagination, but think about the reaction when the prophet Muhammad is profaned and think about the way that Jesus is portrayed and the things that are said about Jesus and no one bats an eye. And I'm certainly not advocating that we respond in the way that Muslims do. But there is an element of holiness that we have lost touch with. We've lost touch with the idea of the sacred. And Lewis is trying to get at that. A lie, said the king fiercely. What creature in Narnia or all the world would dare to lie on such a matter? And without knowing it, he laid his hand on his sword hilt. That I know not, Lord King, said the centaur but I know there are liars on earth. There are none among the stars. I wonder, said Jewel, whether Aslan might not come though all the stars foretold otherwise. He's not the slave of the stars, but their maker. Is it not said in all the old stories that he is not a tame lion? Well said, well said, Jewel, cried the king. Those are the very words, not a tame lion. It comes in many tales from the scriptures in Matthew. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. And from 1 John, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out. And then in the book of Acts, remember that powerful time when all of the believers were together and had everything in common and all of the disciples were coming and laying uh, their property and their proceeds before the feet of the disciples and ananias and sapphira decide to make a gift but they decide to secretly hold back part of it for themselves and make it look like they're giving it all to god and in that scene then peter said ananias How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? And of course, right after that, Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead. So there's clearly a huge reverence for telling the truth about the sacred. And then Proverbs has so much to say about lying But one of the verses, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Now, abomination is probably not a word that shows up in your daily conversation. Uh, But abomination is a really strong word. It means something that is absolutely disgusting, that it is so revolting and so awful that it literally makes you gag, that you can't even look at it. And that is what the scripture tells us lying lips are. But how easy it is to lie and how little our culture seems to care about lying. So Lewis has a lot to say about this. And then, of course, uh, reading through this, it reminds me of that great line from the merchant of Venice. Mark you this, Bassanio, the devil can cite scripture for his own purpose. And you'll remember, that in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew four, that Satan comes to him three times and he often quotes scripture to him out of context and with the wrong intention. But it's just a reminder to us that we as Christians are called to be truthful with a capital T, not just to tell the truth, about things that are going on but to be full of the truth capital t truth which is the word of god both the written word of god and jesus himself that we are to be careful with what is sacred we are not to toy with things that are holy we are to uh, reverence the things that are sacred so then the holiness of nature and of life And again, this is something which, there are so many issues with this right now. Many of you uh, will remember having heard uh, Bishop Michael Nazarali speak at Mere Anglicanism and at St. Philip's. Michael Nazarali, who's now a Roman Catholic bishop, uh, is a great public intellectual and uh, brilliant man, schooled in theology, schooled in biology uh, with different doctorates, and he was actually the head of the UK bioethics commission for the UK government. And the reason that he took on that post when he was already incredibly busy was that he was so profoundly worried about how man had lost sight of the sacredness of life and that the only one who is the creator of life is God alone. And that when man begins to put himself into that position, of thinking that he can create life, where he can monkey with the process of creating life, that is a very dangerous place to be. And you see this if you remember when we were studying that hideous strength, we see that with the nice, the evil group in that story who were doing that very thing. So we get that even here in this children's story. Whoa, 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 called the voice. Whoa for my brothers and sisters. Woe for the holy trees. The woods are laid waste. The axe is loosed against us. We are being felled. Great trees are falling, falling, falling. With the last falling, the speaker came in sight. She was like a woman, but so tall that her head was on a level with the centaurs. Yet she was like a tree too. It is hard to explain if you've never seen a dryad but quite unmistakable once you have. Something different in the color, the voice, and the hair. King Tyrion and the two beasts knew at once that she was the nymph of a beech tree. Justice, Lord King, she cried, come to our aid. Protect your people. They are felling us in lantern waste. Forty great trunks of brothers and sisters are already on the ground. What, lady? felling lantern waste, murdering the talking trees, cried the king, leaping to his feet and drawing his sword. How dare they, and who dares it? Now by the mane of Aslan, ah, gasped the dryad, shuddering as if in pain, shuddering time after time, as if under repeated blows. Then all at once, she fell sideways, as suddenly as if both her feet had been cut from under her. For a second, they saw her lying dead on the grass, and then she vanished. They knew what had happened. Her tree, miles away, had been cut down. For a moment, the king's grief and anger were so great that he could not speak. I love the way that Lewis writes this, because even if you haven't ever thought about a tree being a creation of God, when you read this, it gives you pause. It gives you pause. And it is a beautiful telling of the sacredness of life and what God has created. Some scripture. The Lord God then took the man and settled him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. And then from Isaiah, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And then Jeremiah I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land, and made my inheritance detestable. And then from Deuteronomy, but the land you're crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for, for the eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. And all of these scriptures, and there are hundreds and hundreds of them, remind us that the earth is the Lord's creation. And remember, we always focus in the creation story that when God gets to man, he said, it was very good. But we forget that in the other parts and God saw that it was good and that the creation is the work of God's hands. And so that reverence for nature and the holiness that is attributed to anything that is made by God, that is a sign when when a culture respects that, that is a sign of a culture that is in right relationship to God. A culture that no longer respects nature, that looks on it only as an economic asset to be exploited is one that is elevating man, just like in the Tower of Babel. And remember, it is not an accident that in that hideous strength, which is all about what we're talking about here, um, Lewis has a quotation about the Tower of Babel on the frontispiece of that book. So the danger of hasty outrage. I'm sure none of us has any problem with hasty outrage. I'm sure that if you look at Twitter, There's no hasty outrage out there. It's just all peace and light and joy. If ever a culture had trouble with hasty outrage, it is 21st century America. And let me just say here, there's hasty outrage, but at least in this case, there's a good reason for the outrage. But even so, look what we have to deal with. Come, friends, said the king, we must go up river and find the villains who have done this with all the speed we can. I will not leave one of them alive. Sire with a good will, said Jewel, but Runewit said, sire, be wary even in your just wrath. There are strange doings on foot. If there should be rebels and arms further up the valley, we three are too few to meet them. If it would please you to wait while, I will not wait the 10th part of a second, said the king. But while Jewel and I go forward, do you gallop as hard as you may to care paravel? Here's my ring for your token. Get me a score of men at arms, all well mounted, and a score of talking dogs and 10 dwarfs. Let them all be fell archers and a leopard or so and Stonefoot the giant. Bring all these after us as quickly as can be. With a good will, sire," said, Rinwin. And at once he turned and galloped eastward down the valley. Now, there's several things that are interesting here. First, you see that Tyrion is saying, come friends. He's not going off just on his own. But the most shocking thing here, this is so easy to miss. This is why you have to go slowly when you read this book. The king has decreed that they're going to catch the bad guys and go after them. But Runewit the centaur, who is a humble creature, a beast, not someone in the royal court, not someone with a position of power, says straight to the king's face, sire, be wary. even in your just wrath. He feels that he can speak truth to the king. Now that is something to note. That is not the way things usually work in our culture. So that is important. So uh, there is all sorts of scripture on this theme of hasty outrage, that as Christians, we would do well to spend some time with some of these verses. Because if you're like me, especially if you watch the news, it is all too easy to get hasty outrage going and to go immediately to your friend or your spouse or your roommate and say, you will not believe what I just saw on these. Can you believe that they did that? This is awful. What is happening to this country? Regardless of which side of the aisle you're on, it's all outrage. And that is not something that is healthy. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Then from Proverbs, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Now listen to that last one again. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And this reminds me very much of when you are looking at that list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control. That is a virtue. It may not be one that you see much anymore uh, in our culture, but it is an important virtue. So then sacrificing nature for money. So they've gone to see what has happened and they arrive. The King says, what have we here? And Jewel said, look, it is a raft said King Tyrion. And so it was half a dozen splendid tree trunks all newly cut and newly locked with their branches had been lashed together to make a raft and were gliding swiftly down the river. On the front of the raft, there was a water wrap with a pole to steer it. Hey, water rat, what are you about? Cried the king. Taking logs down to sell to the Calormene, sire, said the rat, touching his ear as if he might have touched his cap, if he had had one. Calormene, thundered Tyrion, what do you mean? Who gave order for these trees to be felled? The river flows so swiftly at that time of the year that the raft had already glided glided past the king and jewel. But the water rat looked back over his shoulders and shouted, the lion's order, sire. Aslan himself. He added something more, but they couldn't hear it. So the Calormenes are the ancient enemies of Narnia. So the idea that Narnian talking trees would be cut down and sold to Calormenes is a national disaster and shocking. But then to hear that Aslan himself had ordered this is the most disturbing thing ever, because that would be uh, akin to God commanding evil. So that is very disturbing. But this whole thing about sacrificing for money is apt for us as well. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And then this passage from Isaiah. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste, the traveler ceases. Covenants are broken, cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. This is what's happened when a conquering force has come and taken over the land. And then can Aslan do evil, doubting the goodness of God? The king and the unicorn stared at one another and both looked more frightened than they had ever been in any battle. Aslan, said the king at last in a very low voice, Aslan, could it be true? Could he be felling the holy trees and murdering the dryads? Unless the dryads have all done something dreadfully wrong, murmured Jewel. But selling them to Kalermen, said the king, is it possible? I don't know, said Jewel, miserably. He's not a tame lion. Well, said the king at last, we must go on and take the adventure that comes to us. It is the only thing left for us to do, sir, said the unicorn. He did not see at the moment how foolish it was for two of them to go alone. Nor did the king. They were too angry to think clearly. But much evil came of their rashness in the end. Suddenly, the king leaned hard on his friend's neck and bowed his head. Jewel, he said, what lies before us? Horrible thoughts arise in my heart. If we had died before today, we should have been happy yes said jewel we have lived too long the worst thing in all the world has come upon us they stood like that for a minute or two and then went on this is basically the death of hope and think about where this chapter started where they're so excited that aslan was finally come and now as they hear these rumors that Aslan has come, they're beginning to think that everything they believed about him was wrong and that he actually is evil and that he is bringing death and destruction. Says some scripture to encourage us. God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Let no one deceive you in any way For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That is when antichrist comes um, and sets himself up as God, that is when you see someone purporting to be God doing evil. So, the chapter ends in a not very happy place, but it gets worse. When they reached the top of it, they could see right into Lantern Waste itself, and the king's face turned white when he saw it. Right through the middle of that ancient forest, that forest where the trees of gold and of silver had once grown and where a child from our world had once planted the tree of protection, a broad lane had already been opened. It was a hideous lane like a raw gash in the land, full of muddy ruts where felled trees had been dragged to the river. There was a great crowd of people at work and a cracking of whips and horses tugging and straining as they dragged at the logs. The first thing they struck the king and unicorn was that about half the people in the crowd were not talking beasts, but men. The next thing was that these were not the fair-haired men of Narnia. They were dark bearded men from Kellermen. And then to the scripture, but ask the animals and they will teach you or the birds in the sky and they will tell you or speak to the earth and it will teach you or let the fish in the sea inform you, which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. It is in his hand that is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. The earth dries up and withers, the world languishes and withers, the heavens languish with the earth, the earth is defiled by its people They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. The people must bear their guilt. We are not to defile God's creation. And then lastly, slavery, abuse, and vengeance. Two Calumnes were driving a horse that was harnessed to a log. Just as the king reached them, the log got stuck in a bad, muddy place. Get on, son of sloth. Pull up, you lazy pig, cried the Calormenes, cracking their whips. The horse was already straining himself as hard as he could. His eyes were red and he was covered with foam. Work, lazy brute, shouted one of the Calormenes, and he struck the horse savagely with his whip. It was then the really dreadful thing happened. Up till now, Tyrion had taken it for granted. The horses the Calormenes were driving were their own horses, dumb, witless animals like the horses of our own world. And though he hated to see even a dumb horse overdriven, he was, of course, thinking more about the murder of the trees. He never crossed his mind that anyone would dare to harness one of the free talking horses of Narnia, much less to use a whip on it. But as that savage blow fell, the horse reared up and said, half screaming, fool and tyrant, do you not see I'm doing all I can? When Tyrion knew that the horse was one of his own Narnians, there came over him and Jewel such a rage, they did not know what they were doing. The king's sword went up, the unicorn's horn went down. They rushed forward together. Next, both the Calarmenes lay dead, one beheaded by Tyrion's sword, and the other gored through the heart by Jewel's horn. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing you have a master in heaven. You shall not oppress a hard worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we have gone from the hope of Aslan to a very dark place. But I want to end with what we started with the song of the tree of life, which is much more hopeful. Unto them that overcometh shall be given the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. On either side of the river groweth the tree of life. The leaves of the tree are for thy healing. In the midst of that fair city flows the river of water of life, clear as crystal. Whoso will, Let them take of the water of life freely. Whoso drinketh of this water shall never thirst. Take thou the leaves of the tree of life, so shalt thou enter in through the gates of the city. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you that we know that you are the one true God with whom there is no shadow of turning. Lord, we know that you are the definition of truth and goodness and beauty. Lord, we know that you are the creator of all that is fair and wonderful, of the stars and their courses, of the rivers, of the seas, of the trees, of all the creatures. Lord, we pray that you would give us a reverence for your creation, but most of all, a reverence for human life and an understanding of the importance of your truth. Lord, we pray, that we would not be deceived. We pray that you would help us to learn from this story, that we would, especially with these scriptures, that we would read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, that we might be conformed more and more to the image of your son as we hold out the word of life in this dark day. We thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.